This is a Federal News Network podcast. Yes, federal employees are returning to their offices. No, conditions won't return to normal, whatever that is. At the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, management and union representatives have been trying out different workplace configurations and generally negotiating how this will all happen. Here with more, the president of the American Federation of Government Employees Local 1923, Anita Autry. Ms. Autry, good to have you on. Thank you. Good morning, Tom. So what is going on with CMS? First of all, Local 1923 is a really big one, isn't it? Yes, it is. And CMS is one of the agencies that we represent and I also work for. Give us the timelines here. If you go back to when everyone was forced home because of telework, how have things progressed and where do we stand now? So we all remember it was March 16th, 2020. Employees were told, hey, get what you can from your desk, your laptops, any equipment, paperwork, whatever you think you need, because we are going into 100% telework status. And we've been that way for the past two years or more. We started talking about returning to the workplace. And, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, you start making plans. And then I think we had the Delta variant and that delayed plans because originally federal agencies, I believe the White House directed that we start returning to work initially in October of 2021. But obviously that was delayed. Now we are tentatively, and when we say return to the workplace, that's going to be much different. Our return date is May 23rd, 2022. However, now your official duty station may be your home. Interesting. So even the management doesn't anticipate everyone just en masse coming right back into the office. Not at all. In fact, what they did, the agency looked at all of the employees' positions throughout the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and decided, hey, is this position qualified for telework? Does it qualify for working remotely inside the geographic area that's close to your office? Because we have offices across the country. Or does your position qualify for you to work remotely outside of the geographic area? So what will be the most significant change? Initially, there were just 20% of the workforce teleworking or working from home full time. Now it could be from the numbers I've looked at, 90 to 95% of the workforce may be working remotely or from their homes. So for example, Your agency office, let's say you worked in the Baltimore location and say you live in Rehoboth Beach. So if you decided to work from your home there, you would lose your locality pay because Baltimore locality pay is much higher than Rehoboth Beach because, for example, a a grade 13 step one would lose $12,000 to $14,000 a year. Oh, real money. Real money because, and so that person might say, Hey, no, I don't want to work remotely. I want to telework and I want to report to the office at least two times in the pay period so that I can retain my locality pay of Baltimore. And is the agency amenable to that so far? Yeah, because all of this teleworking, remote work, it's all voluntary. With the Telework Enhancement Act of 2010, it's been recently updated by OPM to reflect now the workplace more. 
We're speaking with Anita Autry. She's president of AFGE Local 1923, which represents CMS employees. And what about the offices themselves, if only 5 or 10% of the people will be coming in regularly, or maybe everyone will come in once in a while, but everyone won't be there at once at any given time? What are they talking about with configuration and physically what they're going to do with okay. all that space? It's very interesting, and I think change is exciting. So we have one component at our headquarters, and they're doing what they call the big cleanup. And this is a pilot. So those employees are coming in and removing all of their personal effects, throwing away kind of whatever it is that needs to be tossed. And the agency is doing this pilot in order to see how it's going to recycle, throw away what's needed for employees to do that. Because ultimately, the workplace is going to be redesigned. So it's going to be what you call, you have hoteling. Employees can just come in and what you can do, you'll now go online and let's say you want to come in. I want to meet you at the office. So we would see, okay, what workspace is available? We look and you there's a system that's been designed and we log in. Oh, well, we'll take this little hub over there. It has what we need there. Does it have a printer? Does it have the telephone system? We could socially distance. Or do we want an open area? Or can we just go in and sit together because the cafeteria is being remodeled? So it's going to just be, uh, well, do we need to collaborate with a group? And, you know, so it's going to be a completely different workplace. By the way, how many employees are involved? How large is 1923? Now, 1923 is the largest local in the Federation. So uh, we represent about 30,000 employees just with all the components that we represent. But currently, we probably just have maybe right around five or 6,000 dues paying employees. Now, at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, we're a smaller agency. So overall, I think total, including management and everyone, it's about 5,000 employees, and we probably have 1,200 or so dues-paying members. And these negotiations for the office configuration and for telework policy, allowing people, 90% of people, to mostly telework or remote work, how would you characterize the negotiations? Has management generally been trying to work with you, and has it been positive? It was a tumultuous 2021, I will say that. And in spite of getting a new administration, you'll see that it didn't happen overnight as we thought it might. You know, it's kind of like, hey, we've got a new president and he's pro-labor and, you know, it's going to be kumbaya. No. So what I did and the agency, we needed to negotiate the return to work. And it ended up turning into a massive kind of agreement. I've got it here in front of me. And the agency agreed to reopen our contract in order to, let's say, renegotiate some of the things that we lost during the last administration. Such as official time and office space? Correct. Official time. And then there were just other subtle things like, even though partnership ended some years ago, We always, well, you know, it would end and it came back under this president, but we had always worked cooperatively at CMS. But in this last contract, they were directed, you know, to 
they even eliminated our cooperation committee. So we're putting that back. It was just a real interesting time and we survived it. So we're looking at expanding workplace flexibilities for employees and looking at the hours of work. For example, during the pandemic, employees were allowed to work from 5 a.m. to 11 p.m. You know, the children were home or parents. It takes time. And then another part of this, you know, with the COVID-19 testing and the vaccine mandate and the up and down. And so just recently, uh, we've gotten some new guidance from the department because the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services is one of the operating divisions under the Department of Health and Human Services. So we got the new testing requirements for the unvaccinated. The management sent me, you know, a proposal and I had a meeting with them on Monday and I say, wait a minute, the vaccinated federal employees, when they go to other federal buildings, they're considered visitors and they'll need to be tested. And that was something that management failed to realize, oh, wait a minute, we've got to develop a protocol with that. So employees will be given smart cards that are required to be tested and it will have up to a $750 limit so they can be tested, I think, three days before they, you have to have a negative test before you report to the office. So we'll just be developing that program, where to get tests, what tests are acceptable. You know, it's just so much. And then, okay, oh, tomorrow a new law may come out. Well, you can see I'm really involved. I dream about this stuff sometimes. I can imagine. But it sounds like the big issues are largely under control, though, that people don't have to go back to the office, that the office configuration and availability of workspaces is being worked out with this application. So it sounds like you're almost there. We are. You know, each day the agency will develop a new system to accommodate, you know, the changes. And then they'll do a demonstration with me and I'll have a team of folks and we'll look at it. Some of the regional offices, I know in New York and San Francisco, they are moving to other spaces. And in our Dallas regional office, I think someone bought the building. So we're having, because not everyone is in a federal building. Some are in privately owned buildings and there were changes made during the pandemic. And so we're dealing with those, you know, at each location, some of the security and screening measures. And, you know, so it's just a lot happening everywhere. And then tracking the um, the sure. COVID levels in the areas at medium, high, you know, and then determining what we do. Well, sounds like you've got it largely under control. And I think probably your members are saying, I'm glad Anita is in charge here. Oh, they love me. I'm not, you know, I don't want to brag on my, but I keep them very informed. I get their input. And that's been real helpful, especially when I have parents, when we're doing the negotiations, because they started taking their children back. And so the parents could tell me, oh, how much the test really cost. And that's how we got the 150, because I, one of the parents said, no, sometimes she couldn't wait for the test at wherever. So they just go out and purchase their own. So I do get a lot of input from, you know, people that are unlike me. And, uh, and, you know, that's really important. Anita Autry is president of AFGE Local 1923, which represents CMS employees. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure, Tom. Have a wonderful day.
We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Check off the Federal Drive by subscribing at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education she was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my 
leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it 
you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. You think your dog deserves the best for the holidays. BarkBox knows they do. And the best is exactly what BarkBox delivers every month. You'll get fun-themed goodies curated for your dog, and you'll be joining a community of pups and their people. We're celebrating sugar season with a double batch of irresistible toys, treats, and chews from our season sweetings-themed box. To start spoiling your dog and get your free upgrade, visit BarkBox.com podcast. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. <laughs> 